Hello to all our listeners. This is Denise Hummel, CEO of Lead Inclusively, and I have the honor of being here with Deepa Prahalad, who is a world leader in social innovation. And she'll be talking to us about uh, issues related to financial inclusion. She is a significant expert on this subject, something that is very important to all of our listeners. So Deepa, I'm going to turn it over to you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Thank you so much, Denise. The honor to be here as well. And uh, I really uh, focus on social innovation, which is really looking at how you can use the tools of innovation and design and solve very complex social issues like poverty and inequality. And that's something I started out as an economics and political science major, really looking at those issues from the policy side, and later came over to understanding how business could really play a significant role in mitigating these issues and creating opportunity for large groups of people. And so it's a really exciting field. There's so much going on because technology has also moved forward and really created a new set of challenges as well as opportunities. And uh, so it's a very interesting place to be because I think this used to be a really an issue that used to be developed countries versus uh, developing countries. But today it's really a global conversation. We're trying to understand how we can create a lot of wealth, but also make sure that we create a lot of opportunity um, because we have this paradox today where we're having this huge amount of wealth being created and increasing inequality globally. Um, So it's a very interesting um, puzzle that a lot of people are working on. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about specifically just to to frame this up is we're we're living in a world right now that seems to be very polarized, um, politically speaking. There's a strong emphasis on um, the just this whole analysis of the haves and the have-nots, or uh, put another way, uh, the position of scarcity versus abundance. And it occurs to me that there may be those out there who are thinking, you know, okay, I, I get it that you, Deepa, and you, Denise, think that this is the right thing to do. But is there actually a business case for this too? In other words, it seems that financial inclusion is emerging as a major issue uh, in business uh, and, and society as a whole. You know, why is that? I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, For one, that, you know, we've had a lot of emphasis on technology in the last 20 years. And what we've had is that there's this huge amount of wealth that's been created. Cell phones have gone everywhere in the world. And I think some of the reason we're having a lot of volatility is actually positive. We've taken almost a billion people out of extreme poverty since 1990. And I see things a little differently. It's not has versus have nots. I think we've taken a lot of people out of extreme poverty and delivered them into purgatory. (laughs) And it's kind of like this big glass ceiling that is hard to understand. I think once the discussion around poverty used to really be about preventing famines and lowering birth rates. And today it's very different. It's about access to broadband. It's about do people have the capacity to be an entrepreneur? We're measuring gender equality, things we never considered. And a decent standard of living is a moving target, right? I mean, you can't really tell your kids, well, your grandparents didn't always have running water and indoor plumbing, so you should be happy. No, it doesn't work that way. Our 
idea of what a decent standard of living itself evolves because everyone has a cell phone. They have access to information and they also have a need to express themselves, right? And we're, so we're dealing with open-ended questions. If there is a, an emergency, an earthquake or a famine, we've gotten pretty good at handling emergencies. But what we have really to understand as well, managing a famine is a very different thing from saying, how do I create health? But How do I, I solve malnutrition? Mm -hmm. well, I guess what I'm trying to, to, to get at is if I am lucky enough to be, um, let's say, a, wealth, a wealthy uh, American, um, what, you know, why should I care about anybody's agenda but my own? Because I think that our ability to sustain that wealth depends on caring about everybody else's agenda. Because And also the numbers simply defy. If, if we had very small numbers who were you know, falling through the cracks, we might be able to say, well, it was poor choices. But the numbers make it very hard to make that argument. For example, 44% of U.S. workers today are low-wage workers. So we are, even though the job numbers are increasing, there are a lot of people who are looking at things called a job quality index and saying there are structural things in the economy that are happening um, that are basically allowing us to create a lot more low-wage jobs than, you know, good jobs that have potential. Um, so that's one thing. We also have a significant number of people living in poverty. So we have about one in six children following below the U.S. poverty line. Um, and then we have a lot of opportunity zones, so-called opportunity zones with very high levels of unemployment and poverty. We have almost 9,000 of those in the U.S. That's home to 30 million people. And we also have about 29% poverty, which is, is twice the national average. So if we had very small numbers, um, you know, maybe that attitude may not be palatable, but perhaps we could get away with it. But now when we're finding middle-class people saddled with student debt, struggling with health care, um, you know, and everyone concerned about where do we go next, right? A progress that has been made could be wiped away with, you know, automation, with climate change. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think um, all of us have to kind of look at what we can do to make sure that society as a whole um, is stabilized in some sense. Do we have anything to gain by having differing viewpoints from, you know, multiple different kinds uh, of people in terms of architecting the social innovation that, that, you're, that you're describing? We have everything to gain, actually, and very little to lose because the nature of challenges that companies are being asked to weigh in on today, things like climate change, things like security, they depend on very different sets of skills. If there was a genie in the bottle tomorrow with a blank check, we don't have ready-made solutions to any of those challenges. They require individual behavior change. They require lots of innovation. They require education. They require a new narrative. So all of those things really require very high levels of collaboration and trust. And inclusion is actually the foundational value that makes all of those things possible. And, you know, sometimes when we do that, we get these counterintuitive, very simple solutions that, you know, none of us would have thought of. And we all depend on the community more than we realize. Um, you know, if, if you look at a company as big as Apple, their FaceTime flaw recently was pointed out by a 14-year-old boy. Um, so, you know, 
really being smart doesn't mean that you're never going to miss anything. And, uh, you know, there, there's no shortage of talent in some of these big companies. And I think we all applaud when we hear people like Steve Jobs say, you know, stay hungry, stay foolish. We need to engage with the people who actually are to find the solutions that work really well for all of us. Awesome. We're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we'll be talking about whether or not there's any urgency around this issue at all. I'm back with Deepa Prahalad, who is uh, an expert in social innovation, and we've been talking a little bit about financial inclusion as an emerging major issue in business and in society as a whole. What I'd like to know, though, Deepa, we're all so busy in this day and age. Is there really any urgency around um, this inclusion issue? I really think there is, because I think there's a lot of to discussion today about the increasing levels of volatility and uncertainty, um, you know, around the world. And you also have this phenomenon with technology where we've created a lot of wealth, we've created this big user base. So what we're finding is that we've done one side of inclusion, where a lot of the value being created today is very dispersed. It's from users around the world. So value creation is shared. Unfortunately, value capture really is not. Um, and that's a reason why I think there's a little bit um, more of this kind of backlash today than maybe in previous times, um, because we're all on the same platforms where you're using the same things. But the level of benefit, um, it is a win-win, but the, we need to be honest about the level of benefit for various parties. So I think that's um, one thing. And I think we also have this uh, phenomenon where there's a lot of wealth being created, not necessarily being tied to a lot of jobs. And, you know, if entrepreneurship is really being kind of sold as the antidote to a lot of companies, um, you know, not hiring as many workers, then we need to really make sure that entrepreneurship as a pathway is constructed in a way that's inclusive, right? Because, we're finding now in the U.S. new company creation is falling. And a lot of people are attributing that to the huge amounts of student debt that a lot of people are finding themselves in. You also see that, you know, the vast majority of venture capital goes to about three geographic locations um, that can't really be where all the good ideas are. And for people to have, you know, so entrepreneurship itself isn't really only dependent on meritocracy and the quality of the idea. It's also increasingly dependent on generational wealth. Uh, you watch any episode of Shark Tank, like I often do with my son and everyone, like, oh, I was self-funded, um, you know, and sometimes to, for many years and for long periods of time, lots of money. So if we haven't created a system where more people can do that, we're really, by definition, limiting the number of people who can have their ideas in the marketplace. And I think entrepreneurship is a very volatile path. You know, when it works, it works really well. But most of the incubators in this country don't even make money. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, this is the issue where we really need to think about, okay, let's make sure that there are pathways. And, and where do people learn how to be productive, how to be good workers. If we're closing off a lot of those entry points through automation, a lot of people who may not have, you know, the degree or whatever else to open the door are going to be left out, um, maybe not through any malice, but through designs that we haven't fully thought through. Yeah, so I, I, one of the major issues, uh, I think, in terms of financial inclusion is uh, access to education. Not everyone has had this path where they were either able to finance their education through 
the goodwill of their parents or even through financial aid um, necessarily, uh, and therefore don't have the that special degree, you know, um, minimum of an MBA, et cetera, et cetera, which is an impossible path for some people, including geniuses, mm-hmm. um, who could greatly contribute to to society. Um, what what are some of the ways that organizations can make opportunities available to more individuals, more qualified individuals who might not necessarily meet the requirements of, you know, some minimal formal education? Well, I think my friend Byron August, who runs an organization called Opportunity at Work, I mean, he's very good at pointing out that when you specify a bachelor's degree in any job description, you're automatically excluding 60% of the adult workforce. So think, you know, I mean, is this absolutely necessary? Is there some way that people can demonstrate skill? We have to also really, you know, I think differentiate a little bit between skills and knowledge. A lot of people are knowledgeable about football. (laughs) That doesn't mean they're skilled to play at any professional level. Um, So we need to really look at who has adequate skills and also look at who has really attitudes and behaviors and networks um, that enable. And the the problem with being shut out of the workforce and educational institutions is really that the networks that allow you to succeed as an entrepreneur later on, or the networks that allow you to understand how to choose the best course of study for your kids, and those things are closed off to you in many ways. So the impact of exclusion is generational. It's not a one-off Um, phenomenon. And I think also don't make assumptions. You know, a lot of people, when they're very transparent about what expectations are, people rise to the occasion, right? I mean, all organizations have seen that. Who was an app developer or a YouTube influencer or whatever? When you make things um, accessible and easy for people to adapt and plug into and you actually let them express themselves, we can very easily see what capabilities are. We see this on every reality show. <laughs> the home baker going toe-to-toe with, you know, the professionally trained chef. Yep. I, I can envision um, a portal where, um, the you know, you can upload either information regarding your degrees or some sort of an alternative Upload a whatever, a PDF, a video, a a recording, a something to demonstrate uh, how you have these skills or why the issue of a bachelor's or master's or what have you should be um, uh, overlooked. Uh, And and one thing that comes to mind is one of our um, advisors at at Lead Inclusively is the former chief digital officer of of a a major enterprise uh, uh, globally but headquartered in the U.S., and um, she does not have a degree, period, mm-hmm. uh, and was being interviewed for another C-suite position, which was offered to her and then withdrawn. And she literally uh, had to uh, research and investigate uh, and found one of the only organizations, uh, uh, educational institutions in the world that would allow her to get her master's without an undergraduate degree. That's what she had to go through, even though she had already proven herself as being invaluable to more than one significant organization. So I can really see the need for creative solutions around um, this particular um, issue. Let me ask you, um, do we have any lessons from, from brands generally on how organizations can foster inclusion? Because I think everyone 
relates to stories. So to the extent that you know about real life organizations who have done things that would, you know, that maybe we'd not expect, I would love to hear about them. And I'm sure our listeners would as well. There are so many cases. And I think the key to really fostering inclusion and also really getting the benefit of innovation is creating that emotional connection with your audience is critical, right? There's just so much power in kind of understanding other people's stories. And historically also, I think there's just tremendous inspiration that we can draw from. Of course, businesses have to be responsible to their shareholders. They have to, you know, manage processes and inventory and all that good stuff. And I will not take away from that. And you, if you can't do those things, you really can't fulfill a social purpose as well. But it was very interesting to me that, you know, as Sears closed its doors last year, there were some historians who said, you know, we're closing a chapter on a company that really created opportunity and created um, a way for people to cope with discrimination in the Jim Crow South, because they said, well, there was a, a law that gave free shipment um, to rural areas in the South and throughout the country. And the color catalog was actually an innovation that allowed a lot of Black Americans to access premium goods and services, escape price gouging for the first time, have a wide range of choices about what they bought, and also have a pleasant shopping experience because that catalog order made people colorblind. And it also increased access to people of all races who were not fully literate. And operators were trained at the time where even if there was a scrap of paper, even if it was misspelled, if someone wrote in and said, you know, I want a pair of large overalls, for example, those people would, uh, who worked in Sears would come in and try to match as closely as possible to things they had in the catalog and ship it through. So I think there's this capacity to do social good that is so powerful um, that all of us need to tap into. And I think all this vision of, you know, one laptop per child and things like that, um, you know, while the device itself may not be as relevant given how much cell phones have advanced, that idea of really thinking about how can we collaborate to create inclusion and to create a world where all of us can communicate better. And, you know, I think what's hard about this is ditching the idea that somebody else's opportunity comes at your cost, because I think it's really interesting now. I mean, are, are, are you and I worse off now that 5 billion people have cell phones or do we have much wider opportunities than we ever had before to communicate, to collaborate, to, you know, supposing I want something custom made from anyone around the world, I can text them. I can go to their website. Um, you know, they can offer things on my platform for sale to a global audience. And it takes time to get there. But we can get there and we have to remember that we have done this a few times before, you know, pre-internet, Harriet Beecher Stowe changed the narrative about slavery with one book, uh, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And there was so much backlash against it that she actually had to publish a study guide to go alongside saying, yes, this is a fictional work, but these are the documents that I have based my story on. This is the reality of slavery, and I'm making it known to people who may not know. And today with technology, I think you can see that consciousness around climate change, around human trafficking, all of these things um, that we never really considered before can be accelerated. And 
we're hearing voices that we may not have heard 20 years ago, whether it's Malala or, you know, Greta Turnberg or others like her. Um, and I think that, of course, there are downsides to everything, but we actually have the opportunity to widen our vision and widen our opportunities in the process. So what, what are some of the issues you think need that need to be addressed basically to, to accelerate um, this, this rate of social inclusion? I think the main thing is just acknowledging, you know, this is the, the whole consultant's lingo, right? We're in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. What that demands is a lot of collaboration and trust. You and I are sitting here in this beautiful, you know, California. Well, climate change is going to hit you and I the same way it's going to hit anyone else, right? Um, you know, and we also don't need to make assumptions about why people you know, behave a certain way or stay stuck, right? We can ask directly. I think one of the most inspiring stories I've heard of this was with a bank called Mandeshi Bank. And the founder wanted to help a lot of women who were just, you know, very low wage workers who just wanted to start savings accounts. And banks would not allow this in India in the 1990s. And she went to start her own bank to help. And the bank manager said, not only are your customers unbankable, they're also illiterate. How can you ask me to open accounts? And so she went back in tears to explain to this community. And they said, is that the only reason? Well, in this case, we'll start to read. They started a literacy class that evening. And within six months, they went back to the bank manager and said, first of all, there wasn't a school around when we were growing up. So our illiteracy is really your responsibility, not ours. But second of all, we do know how to count and we'll calculate any um, amount of principal and interest without a calculator. Can your bank managers do the same? Um, and she has an amazing TED talk. She was actually co-chair of the World Economic Forum last year. Wow. But I think dropping the assumptions all of us have done things that previous generations didn't do we're going to watch our kids do things we never did but i think that fundamental belief in the possibility of our fellow human beings not only in the technologies that are being developed is so critical so i i, I just i just have to know um were they able to make those calculations in their they head really at, were and, and they and got the, it approved okay. and it is a going concern and they actually now are able to do so many things aside from just savings accounts. They have developed this whole suite of amazing financial services for people who would have been considered unbankable, not just by Western institutions, but by institutions in any developing country as well. So this ability to struggle with issues of fairness and equity is just critical to innovators in all sectors. So I'm, what I'm hearing from you is is it's not just that we want to have as diverse um, a, a point of view and ideas as possible to propel innovation, but also that there's entire segments of society in terms of buyers um, and con contributors to the economic equation that if we're not sort of thinking of how to expand the pie, we're actually losing out on on those um, those demographics or those group of people that that had had we the ability to think outside the box in terms of um, serving them, we'd we'd also have the the benefits of the revenue that would be associated with that. Hundred percent, and you know this is where I am excited about entrepreneurship because I think entrepreneurs have the luxury to be inclusive at birth. 
right? Uh, you know, if you really look at the kind of macro level picture, the life cycle of CEOs is decreasing. The life cycle of any technology, um, however sophisticated, is also decreasing. So if we don't imagine a much wider consumer base at the outset of the process, it becomes very hard to course correct and try to backfill and and pass on this incredible burden of inequality um, to our children to cope with later on. Just like, you know, I think all of us maybe remember um you know, the second President Bush finally made an official apology to Japanese Americans for the intern uh, internment uh, during the Second World War. And I think in many cases, if we don't address this problem, we're handing out not just a, you know, societal, social debt, but a big financial debt as well. I mean, why should we extend college loans that people can't sustain? and then have organizations that are not inclusive. So there is no capacity for people to pay back, right? You give people a narrative, yes, you can you can succeed, this is the tool you require. I go and jump through the hoops, and if we don't have an inclusive work culture and I don't have you know, this huge um, bandwidth and, and connections to start my own business, who's going to pay for all that, right? I mean, you're actually making individuals and society worse off. So it's really on all of us to try and address this issue. I'm wondering, I've heard you talk about the sort of the field trip versus homework approach. What do you mean by that? Because I think the way to get people excited, people like to help one another. They like to share stories. They don't like to sit in a classroom and have compliance exercises and checking off the boxes. And that feels very shallow. And I think the reason why inclusion and diversity is hard work is because we have inherently contradictory aims as individuals. I mean, we want to be respected for our individual superpowers, and we also want to belong to an organization. So how do I structure that? And I also need some time to understand what is, you know, it took me years to understand, oh, well, what is it about my ethnic background and my family story that actually allows me to see things differently? People don't come to that immediately. We have to create the space for people to discover that. And on the other hand, if somebody chooses not to share their sexual orientation or whatever initially until they feel comfortable, we have to respect that. Um, and so I think civility is just this really foundational thing that allows us and creates the space for those ideas to come forward, for people to understand where they can contribute. And I really liked your last, you know, post about transparency. I think when companies are really transparent about what their aims are, what they're trying to do in the world, people tend to forgive small missteps, which are inevitable. Innovation so cannot be successful 100% of the time. Thank you all for joining. This is the Lead Inclusively podcast, and I'm your host, Denise Hummel, joined by Deeper Prahalad. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe to the channel and sign up for our newsletter to get updates on future podcast interviews, articles, events, and more. Thank you again, and see you all next time.